Let me introduce myself. Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw was a playwright and political activist, artist, revolutionary, commentator on the 20th century and incorrigible public speaker. He had an opinion on everything, gave thousands of lectures and at one of them he began to wonder, aloud of course, what would happen if the audience decided to chain him to the lectern. Most likely, he thought, he'd just carry on talking undeterred, for a while at least. But at last my attention would shift from the audience in front of me to that corner of the room behind me, because that is where the refreshment room is. I should, in fact, be thinking of nothing but my next meal. I should finally reach a point at which, though I am a vegetarian, I should be looking at the chubbiest person in the room and wishing I could eat that chubby person. You may aim at making a man cultivated and religious, but you must feed him first, and you must feed him to the point at which he is reasonably happy. And to do this, the natural wealth of the country must be returned to the people. So all his life, Shaw campaigned, lectured and even marched to further the cause of socialism. Above all, he wrote pamphlets for the Fabian Society, letters to the papers, programmes for nationalisation or a welfare state, and, of course, his plays. But how successful was he? Roy Hattersley, deputy leader of the British Labour Party. But play after play revealed, and in a sense advocated, since he was a very didactic writer, aspects of socialism which were important in the 1890s, 1930s, and in my view are just as important in the 1990s, particularly the great conflict between obligations to society and individualism. That is one of the great dilemmas that still faces socialists, how the individual can fulfil himself or herself and do those things which are consistent with his own or her own personality and at the same time um, play a proper part in society without playing a selfish part in society. I think he was very important and very effective in the early days. He was in all the initial organisations, the pamphlets in which he's saying the Social Democratic Federation, which despite its name was Marxist, was the only hope for the workers of Great Britain. Then he was turning up at conferences and denouncing Marxism when he was converted to George, the uh, social credit proponent. Um, But what he's really doing all the time is exposing the issues, he's writing pamphlets, and he's also writing, as well as some theoretical pamphlets, which in my view aren't very good, like the impossibility of anarchism, um, which he writes as if he'd not read or thought about any of the work that had been done in the previous hundred years about organising society and responsibilities in society, as well as the theoretical pamphlets that aren't very good. He produces some programmes, some manifestos, if you like, and when the Liberals had turned very unradical, abandoned the Newcastle programme, um, he produces a programme of his own to put in its place. Nationalisation of the land. The state, not 
forming great monopolies to manufacture and to run the public utilities, but the state competing with private industry, uh, equality for women, uh, reduction of the powers of the hereditary House of Lords, uh, constant attacks on various forms of privilege, all very good stuff. When he gets down to writing manifestos, which he did in two of his first 20 Fabian tracks, it's very practical, very good, and very far-seeing. It's when he turns to theory that I think quite intentionally goes over the top. I think that he was a, a brilliant man who miscalculated the effect of his words very often. Uh, he didn't uh, patronise people, which is sometimes necessary to persuade them. He really... Um, most of his ideas came to him initially as jokes. Unwrap the joke and you get the serious content. Um, therefore he presented uh, his ideas as jokes and was amazed that people didn't take him seriously. He believed that humour was a serious business. Um, other people believed that he was just a clown. That was Michael Holroyd, Shaw's biographer. He's just completed the mammoth task of documenting all of Shaw's 94 years and from the biography, it's obvious that even if he did wrap his ideas up in jokes, the vegetarian cannibal, socialism for millionaires, he was in deadly earnest. And some of the things that concerned him are still issues today. Declan Kybird. What is still, I suppose, being fought for is, if you like, the green agenda. The idea of vegetarianism, the idea that when we buy meat, we are, in effect, indirectly, but very clearly, um, working against the interests of poor people in the third world, that we are getting meat uh, which is, if you like, the product of uh, grains which might otherwise go to feed starving peoples in Africa and India and so on. Uh, Shaw would clearly have endorsed many of the ideas of the Green Party today and canvassed those ideas 60, 80, 100 years ago. It, it's the tragedy of really original thinkers to become less and less remarkable in direct proportion to the success with which they promote their ideas. And much that Shaw believed at the time seemed scandalous, outrageous, even jokey, but is now commonplace, the idea of a welfare state, the idea of equal pay for equal work, uh, the notion that the labouring classes should organise themselves in some way and, in fact, link up with the more progressive elements within the middle class, a notion which took the form of the Labour Party, to which he gave a kind of critical support. Uh, all that made him a prophetic figure in his time, but now it seems in many ways unremarkable. And Shaw never missed an opportunity to put forward his views. He used everything, lectures, pamphlets, later on radio and television, but especially his plays. Journalist Carol Coulter. I think um, that he was very important because of his identity with the European theatre, even though he was working in England. And he did take on board the most advanced kind of theatre that was happening in Europe at the time and in fact introduce it to an English audience. And that in itself was a massive achievement. There were a lot of writers and dramatists on the continent of Europe who were socialists and um, the idea of participating in the social processes that were going on was not that foreign on continental Europe. It was, however, a very strange idea for people in England and for uh, English playwrights who did a very, very different kind of thing on the stage at that time. Um, but the ideas were the most advanced ideas that were doing the rounds, so to speak, ideas of socialism, of uh, concern for um, the future of uh, the planet in a certain interpretation of what Shaw was saying, uh, his dietary theories, uh, um, and his ideas about religion, about nationalism, about imperialism. I mean, he was a very uh, 
trenchant criticism of British imperialism, um, not only in relation to Ireland but in relation to the other colonies. And in that, he was fairly ahead of his time and not enormously popular for his views. I dislike war, not only for its dangers and inconveniences, but because of the loss of so many young men, any of whom may be a Newton or an Einstein, a Beethoven, a Michelangelo, or even a Shaw. If nations had any sense, they would begin by sending their oldest men into the trenches. They would not risk the lives of their young men, except in the last extremity. In 1914, it was a dreadful thing to see regiments of lads singing Tipperary on their way to the slaughterhouse. But the spectacle of octogenarians hobbling to the front, waving their walking sticks and piping up to the tune of we'll never come back no more, boys, we'll never come back no more. Wouldn't you cheer that enthusiastically? I should. But let me not forget that I should be one of them. Shaw was fond of throwing opposites together and seeing what came out of the clash, like the old men on their last legs tottering off to the war, or a young girl, Joan of Arc, leading her nation to victory. And what sometimes happened was that things which seemed to be different, contradictory even, when you looked at them closely, were really not so very different after all. In fact, sometimes they were really the same, like love and hate, both sides of the same coin. Inna, what are you taking there? I'm a good girl, I am. Woman, cease this detestable boo-hooing instantly, or I'll seek shelter elsewhere. I'm a right to be in for life, same as you. A woman who utters such depressing and disgusting sounds has no right to be anywhere, no right to live. Remember that you are a human being with a soul and the divine gift of articulate speech. That your native language is the language of Milton and the Bible. And don't sit there crooning like a bilious pigeon. You see this creature with her curbstone English? Well, sir, in six months, I could pass that girl off as a duchess at an ambassador's garden party. What is that you say? Yes, you squashed cabbage leaf. You incarnate insult to the English language. I could pass you off as the Queen of Sheba. That was Eliza Doolittle and Professor Higgins in Pygmalion. She changes during her time with the professor. It would be difficult to imagine two people more different than Eliza and Henry Higgins. And Shaw liked the explosive effect of combining opposites and contradictions. He believed that this was how what he called the life force worked in human beings, propelling us beyond ourselves, continually creating, evolving, growing. He believed, rather like the poet William Blake, in energy. Energy was the god. Uh, and getting uh, one's body and mind in a current of energy that uh, suited it and um, where one worked best. Uh, But he certainly believed that to use energy 
created energy. That was the paradox. That if you just lay around not doing anything, saving energy, you wouldn't have any energy. Um, and I'm certain that that must be right. We now, we now think of that as right. But of course, in late Victorian times, early uh, Edwardian times, a lot of grand ladies and, uh, and gentlemen lay around, didn't do anything. And he always thought that they were the unemployed. They were the uh, um, sort of uh, undeserving unemployed, these grand ladies. And that in order to have any self-respect, one had to have goals to reach, a future. And of course, longevity, he lived, lived until his mid-90s, depended upon a passionate curiosity in life itself and in man's relationship to his environment. And really what he wanted to do was to unite um, Eastern and Western ideas, uh, some uh, Eastern religious ideas with some uh, Western technology, shall we say, the inside and the outside of life. He wanted to find a way of uniting that. Uh, in an early play like Pygmalion, it starts uh, as a symbol, really, of the West End gentleman and the East End girl, and in a late play like The Simpleton of the Unexpected Isles, it is the whole of the East and Western continents, as it were. East, West, whole continents even. Bernard Shaw was not just a citizen of the world, but of the universe. We know there is intention and purpose in the universe because there is intention and purpose in us. People have said, where is this purpose, this intention? I say it is here, it is in me. I feel it, I directly experience it. And so do you, and you need not try to look as if you didn't. There is some force you cannot explain. And this particular force is always organizing, organizing, organizing. You are not only striving in some particular way to get more and more power, to grow organs and limbs with which you can mold the universe to your liking. You are also continually striving to know, to become more conscious, to see what it is all driving at. And there you have the genuine thing you have some particular force. And you get a sort of idea that God, as it were, is in the making, and that there is this force driving us. We cannot be satisfied that we are the last word. It really would be too awful to think that there is nothing to come but us. Nevertheless, we may hope that if only we give everybody the best possible chance in life, this evolution of life may go on, and after some time, if we begin to worship life instead of merely worshipping mammon, the cooperation with this power becomes your religion. You begin to feel your hands are the hands of God, that he has no other hands to work with, that your mind is the mind of God, that he made your mind in order to work with it. 
Many people found the workings of Shaw's own mind rather hard to take, especially when he declared his admiration for people like Hitler and Mussolini. He visited Stalin in Russia and was much impressed by his moustaches. Leaders who embodied the energy that could shape nations seemed to fascinate him, and critics saw this as a fatal flaw in his intellect, his character even. The trouble was that he was scrupulously fair-minded. He had a compulsion to give credit where credit was due, even to dictators and tyrants. But while he did admit to agreeing with nine-tenths of what these people said and did, it was the other tenth that needed watching. Let us come down to brass tacks. What am I, a superannuated non-combatant, encouraging young men to fight against? It is not German National Socialism. I was a National Socialist before Mr Hitler was born. I've no prejudices against him personally. Much that he has spoken and written echoes what I myself have written and spoken. He has adopted even my diet. I am interested in him as one of the curiosities of political history, and I fully appreciate his physical and moral courage, his diplomatic sagacity, and his triumphant rescue of his country from the yoke the Allies imposed on it in 1918. In short, I can pay him a dozen compliments, which I could not honestly pay to any of our present rulers. My quarrel with him is a very plain one. I happen to be what he calls a Nordic. In stature, in colour, in length of head, I am the perfect blonde beast whom Mr Hitler classes as the salt of the earth, divinely destined to rule over all lesser breeds. Trace me back as far as you can, and you will not find a Jew in my ancestry. Well, I have a friend who is a Jew, his name is Albert Einstein, and he is a far greater human prodigy than Mr Hitler and myself rolled into one. The nobility of his character has made his genius an unmixed benefit to mankind. Yet Adolf Hitler would compel me, the Nordic Bernard Shaw, to insult Albert Einstein, to claim moral superiority to him and unlimited power over him, to rob him, drive him out of his home, exile him, and finally to kill him as part of a general plan to exterminate his race. We ought to have declared war on Germany the moment Mr Hitler's police stole Einstein's violin. The affairs of nations were not the only ones that preoccupied Shaw. He was something of a slave to the battle of the sexes, and although he was a passionate campaigner on behalf of women and women's rights, in his personal relations with them he often behaved, well, disgracefully, stringing them along, passing them on to his friends, playing one off against the other, and generally causing no end of trouble. The problem, he tells us, was that he was infernally attractive to women. Michael Holroyd looks for the reasons for these strange relationships in Shaw's childhood, when the family shared a house with his mother's singing teacher. Yes, he wanted to be the, the other man. Uh, 
in a relationship. Not the, the man who was married to the woman, but her um, lover or any way up to a point. There seems to be something he was working at, having been brought up in a menage a trois, having wondered whether he was legitimate or illegitimate. His father's name had been George Carshaw, the other man had been George Vandeleur Lee. Which George had he been named after? In the end, he gave up using the word George, name George, he was just Bernard Shaw, um, because it was a symbol of uncertainty, unsureness. Uh, it seemed to, to uh, in some way, imperil his identity, his very self. So what he did in some uh, of his affairs was to re-enact this early experience and not actually have sexual intercourse with the girl, which by implication made him legitimate. The peculiar relationship between his mother and father and uh, his mother's other relationship uh, did have an effect on him and must have had on anybody in those circumstances. And his uh, relationships with women later on and uh, his attempt to be both intimate and distant at the same time uh, perhaps reflects the results of those early experiences. Um, who knows? I certainly think that they cast a certain light on it. But I'm, I'm not sure that at the end of the day the biographical details of somebody's life alter the importance or their impact of their work. I don't share um, the views of people who think that if somebody's personal behaviour may not have matched up to their standards, that somehow it invalidates work that they have done otherwise. Uh, I don't think so. I think that somebody's emotional state um, or personal peculiarities are one thing, and unless they uh, lead to doing a lot of serious damage to somebody, they don't negate great work. Whatever, again, I think, whatever about his, uh, his personal relationships, which, which I do think are, are secondary in terms of his overall contribution, um, he was a great advocate of the intellectual worth of women and their capacity to make contributions at an intellectual level, as well as an advocate of their rights, and I think that is important, and was important in the context in which he lived. I think that he was very frightened of women in certain ways. I think that he had loved his mother when a child, I think that uh, she had not loved him and indeed had left home, and he felt himself to be essentially loveless. Um, that is why he transferred so much of his emotional thought and energy from his mother to his adopted mother country. But he was attracted by women, and he couldn't resist flirting with them, writing them love letters, spiralling round, but always protecting himself. Because if that woman rejected him, it would not be just a rejection, bad enough, but it would carry behind it that double punch of his mother's early rejection, and he thought he would go under. So on the one hand, he couldn't leave women alone, on the other hand, he couldn't really commit himself, and it must sometimes have been very exasperating for women. But um, he was always wanting to transfer it perhaps into something else, onto a, into part of a play. He was of course a writer, so therefore all experience is used to put it to something else. And some women don't like to be used. On the other hand, who would wish to be useless? Who indeed. Still, in spite of all these personal traumas in his relationships with women, Shaw seemed to think that perhaps even the common-sense opposites of gender, male and female, might in some way be really the same. 
In Village Wooing, he shows the familiar problem, familiar for him, that is, of the reluctant male being pursued by a determined woman. In this case, they're on a ship together, so there's no escape. I can't make you out at all. I'm rather good at making out people as a rule, but I can't make head or tail of you. Well, I'm not here to be made out, and you're not here to make people out, but to revel in the enjoyments you've paid for. Deck tennis, deck quoits, uh, shuffleboard, golf, squash rackets, the swimming pool, the gymnasium, they all invite you. I'm no good at games. Besides, they're silly. I'd rather sit and talk. Well, then, for heaven's sake, talk to somebody else. I've no time for talk. I have to work my passage. What do you mean, work your passage? You're not a sailor. No. I make a precarious living on board ship by writing the Marco Polo series of chatty guidebooks. Unless I complete 2,000 words a day, I'm bankrupt. I cannot complete them if you persist in talking to me. Do you mean you're writing a book about this cruise? Yes, I'm trying to, under great difficulties. Will I be in it? You will. How thrilling. I've never been put in a book before. You will read me what you've written about me, won't you? When the book is published, you can read it to your heart's content. But I should like you to get me right. After all, what do you know about me? I will tell you the whole of my life, if you like. Great heavens, no. No, please don't. Oh, I don't care who knows it. Evidently. You'd hardly offer to tell it to a perfect stranger if you cared. Or if it was of the smallest interest. Oh, I'd never think of you as a stranger. Here we are on the same ship, aren't we? And most people will think my life quite a romance. Wouldn't you really like to hear it? No, I tell you. When I want romances, I invent them for myself. Oh, well, perhaps you wouldn't think it's very wonderful. But it was a regular treat for me. You may think, because I'm well-dressed and travelling deluxe and all that, that I'm an educated lady, but I'm not. I never supposed for a moment that you were. But how could you know? How did you find out? Oh, I didn't find out. I knew. Who told you? Nobody told me. Then how did you know? How do I know that a parrot isn't a bird of paradise? They're different. That's precisely. There you are, you see. But what would you take me for if you met me in a third-class carriage? I shouldn't notice you. I bet you would. I mayn't be a beauty, but when I get into a railway carriage, every man in it has a look at me. Well, I'm not every man. Every man thinks that every woman that steps into a railway carriage may be the right woman, but she's always a disappointment. Same with the women, isn't it? If you were a woman, you'd know. I am a woman, and you're a man, with a slight difference that doesn't matter except on special occasions. Oh, what a thing to say. I never could bring myself to believe that. I think he was enormously ambivalent about women. Um, I'm not a... I'm a great opponent of this sort of Freudian interpretation of why people write, how people react. But um, I don't think he had got, actually got a clear focus on what he thought about women and what he thought women could be and do, and if you like, what they were for. I mean, I think I understand that women are very much for what I'm for. They're to do the same things as men are to do, but in one particular, they play a different part in the biological process. But I don't think you sure I have that clear-cut view. Women are irrational, that's all there is to that. Their heads are full of cotton, hay and rags. They're nothing but exasperating, irritating, vacillating, calculating, agitating, maddening and infuriating hands! Can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair. Who, when you win, will always give your back a pat? Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use her head? 
Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up like their fathers instead? Why can't a woman take after a man? Men are so pleasant, so easy to please. Whenever you're with them, you're always at ease. Would you be slighted if I didn't speak for hours? Of course not. Would you be livid if I had a drink or two? Nonsense. Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Never. Why can't a woman be like you? One man in a million may shout a bit. Now and then there's one with slight defects. One perhaps whose truthfulness you doubt a bit. But by and large we are a marvellous sex. Why can't a woman behave like a man? Men are so friendly, good-natured and kind. A better companion you never will find. If I were hours late for dinner, would you bellow? Of course not. If I forgot your silly birthday, would you fuss? Nonsense. Would you complain if I took out another fellow? Never. Why can't a woman be like us? People are still full of the old idea that woman is a special creation. I am bound to state that of late years she has been working extremely hard to eradicate that impression and make one understand that a woman is really only a man in petticoats, or, if you like, that a man is a woman without petticoats. People sometimes wonder what is the secret of the extraordinary knowledge of women which I show in my plays. They very often accuse me of having acquired it by living a most abandoned life, but I never acquired it. I have always assumed that a woman is a person exactly like myself, and that is how the trick is done. The trick? Were they all just tricks then, smart aleck poses? The vegetarian, the socialist, the anti-vivisectionist, the paper feminist, the champion of a new English alphabet? To some people all this amounted at best to delusions of grandeur, and at worst the ravings of a lunatic. Declan Kybert doesn't think so. Well, I think the word often used was crank, but as another great vegetarian and pacifist and socialist, Francis Sheehy Skeffington, once said, a crank is a small item in a machine, but it does make revolutions. And Shaw was very much that kind of thinker. Uh, he believed in those ideals. He mingled, if you like, the, non-aggressive, the non-aggressivity of vegetarianism with a whole wider politics, including the espousal of women's rights, Uh, if you like, of feminism, and the attempt by a whole society to purge itself of a purely masculine self-image and reach back to something much more androgynous. And if we look at his plays, in particular if we look at the character of St. Joan, the character in the play I consider his greatest, we find there a woman who is in many ways manly and who epitomises this ideal of androgyny I've been speaking of. Um, Shaw was once asked why he was so good at depicting women. And it's well known that St. Joan is one of the most fascinating challenges to an actress. She's a child. She's the foundress of a nation. She's the first Protestant, according to Shaw. She's old. She's young. She's everything. Uh, And he answered by saying, well, it's easy. I just assumed that a woman was, in all respects, the same kind of creature as a man. And the rest followed. And I think if you look at St. Joan, you can see that. That she puts on, of course, the garb of a male. According to the book of Deuteronomy, to the ancient Bible, this was her sin. It was an abomination to the Lord thy God if a woman simulated the clothing of a male. And yet this is what makes her a saint, this ability to transcend gender. I mean, 
after baptism, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And Shaw reaches to the paradox at the heart of androgyny, that on the one hand, it can cause you to be burnt as a witch, as she was, but that on the other hand, it has, in many ways, the insignia of saintliness about it. And I think this is all related to the kind of new woman, new Fabian feminist woman, who was emerging in the 1920s when Shaw wrote the play. I am alone on earth. I have always been alone. My father told my brothers to drown me. If I would not stay to mind his sheep, while France was bleeding to death. France might perish if only our lambs were safe. I thought France would have friends at the court of the King of France. And I find only wolves fighting for pieces of our poor, torn body. I thought God would have friends everywhere, because he is the friend of everyone. And in my innocence, I believe that you who now cast me out would be like strong towers to keep harm from me. But I am wiser now, and nobody is any the worse for being wiser. Do not think you can frighten me by telling me that I am alone. France is alone, and God is alone. And what is my loneliness before the loneliness of my country and my God? I see now that the loneliness of God is his strength. Where would he be if he listened to your jealous little counsels? Well, my loneliness shall be my strength too. It is better to be alone with God. His friendship will not fail me, nor his counsel, nor his love. In his strength, I will dare and dare and dare until I die. I will go out now to the common people and let the love in their eyes comfort me for the hate in yours. You will all be glad to see me burnt. But if I go through the fire, I shall go through it to their hearts forever and ever. And so God be with me. You know, the woman is quite impossible. I, I don't dislike her really, but what, what are you to do with such a character? I think a great influence on him in this was Blake. Blake, the great English poet, had the notion that in the ancient world, all persons were integral. They had male and female dimensions. But a, a terrible fall had happened, and we were all specialised out into either male or female. And that the male only had glimpses of his lost female self in dreams. But that when the female was truly recovered in the male, that war would cease, that people would not use conflict and violence as a way to solve problems. And I think Shaw's vegetarianism and his feminism have to be understood in, that, understood in that wider context. Don't forget that you just had World War I, which was a period in which women entered the workforce in large numbers uh, and did jobs, particularly in munitions factories, previously reserved for men. You then have a lot of men killed or wounded. And I think you have in the 1920s a lot of women walking around, almost subconsciously trying to impersonate the men who are missing. You get the rise of flat-chested fashion, the bobbed hair, of the 1920s flapper woman. And Shaw really portrays Joan as a flapper, as a new 1920s woman who wears her hair bobbed and is laughed at by the court ladies for doing it, but is proud and brave enough to continue, and who wears the apparel, the clothing of a male. 
And maybe it's not feminism, maybe it's androgyny that he's really canvassing there, but whatever it is, it is an image of the modern woman, the woman who's emerged in more recent times. Don't forget, there's, what was it, 10, 15 years after this play, Greta Garbo was hooted off a stage for actually appearing in trousers, in a pinstripe suit. Even in the 1930s, the idea of a beautiful woman appearing in what was seen as male clothing was regarded as highly subversive. And yet Shaw is exploring all these themes in this play of the 1920s. But even Shaw, the ultimate modern man, or so he'd have us believe, had his difficulties with the modern woman. And these are problems which even now haven't gone away. Because the corollary of the manly woman is the womanly man. And that is the battle that is still to be fought for. It is very clear, and Shaw shows it, that women have put on more and more manly attributes. The, the history of fashion in our own century shows it. It's all right now for women to wear men's clothes. It seems to enhance their femininity even. But if I were to walk down O'Connell Street tomorrow morning in a dress, I would certainly be laughed at and even possibly be arrested. Um, the idea of a male putting on female qualities is much, much more ambivalent. It's as if males who do that lose a dimension of their personhood. And I think that what is interesting about Shaw is that many of his male figures are willing to take that risk. They all bully me. Aren't afraid? Yes, I am afraid. It's no use preaching to me about it. It's all very well for these big men with their armor that's too heavy for me, and their swords that I can hardly lift, and their muscle and their shouting and their bad tempers. They like fighting. Most of them are making fools of themselves all the time. They're not fighting. But I am quiet and sensible. And I don't want to kill people. I only want to be left alone to enjoy myself in my own way. I never asked to be king. It was pushed on me. So if you're going to say, son of St. Louis, gird on the sword of your ancestors and lead us to victory, you may spur your breath to cool your porridge. For I cannot do it. I'm not built that way. And there's an end to it. Blethers. We are all like that to begin with. I shall put courage into thee. But I don't want to have courage put into me. I want to sleep in a comfortable bed, not live in continual terror of being killed or wounded. Put courage into the others and let them have their belly full of fighting. But let me alone. It's no use, Charlie. Thou must face what God puts on thee. If thou fail to make thyself king, thou'lt be a beggar. What else art fit for? Come, let me see thee sitting on the throne. I have looked forward to that. Oh, what's the good of sitting on the throne when the other fellows give all the orders? And I think myself that if one were to define the greatness of his art, one would see it in terms of paradox. He would be very, very close to Wilde, that they both begin with oppositions, opposition between England and Ireland, between male and female, black and white, and so on. But a moment is reached when the seeming opposites turn out to be actual doubles, when the male is also female, when the Irish person is shown to have a kind of honorary English person within the self. The theme of John Bull's Other Island, Shaw's play on Anglo-Irish relations, is that the Irishman actually turns out to be empirical, scientific, rather rational, whereas it is the Englishman, because of his superior power, who can afford to be romantic, breathless, a little bit dreamy. And this is a total reversal of the normal stereotypes, as you know. Equally in his treatment of gender relations, Shaw often shows men who are in fact hopelessly romantic, breathless, because they have a power that allows them to, if you like, indulge their own sentiment. And women who, because of disadvantage, become perforce rational, analytical, shrewd. Uh, again, what seems like opposites turn out to be doubles. 
So that the ideal of androgyny at the level of sexual relations becomes the ideal, if you like, of internationalism at the level of politics. The differences between an Irish and an English person are ultimately unimportant compared with the solidarity which binds them in the face of those who oppress them. And my view would be that this is, if you like, Shaw's importance as an artist as well as a thinker, that he understood paradox in its deepest meaning. And he understood that, as in fact Yeats once said, it takes only talent to spot differences. It takes genius to spot the underlying unity in people's ideas. And once you'd spotted this underlying unity, you could harness it, use it as a vehicle for change, and try to make the world a better place. And he wanted to see if change could be, uh, could come about by altering the minds of the country. That is why writers were so important, for making ordinary people see things differently and to nerve them for change. Because the great paradox of life, he thought, was that um, the conservative point of view, the status quo, seemed so safe whereas change always seems so risky and sometimes frightening. But the paradox was, if you did not embrace change, if you didn't um, uh, uh, have a radical view, then you would fossilise. And the very thing that seemed so safe was the thing that would kill you. All that was for future use and to find an amalgam between things that at first sight couldn't possibly mix. But if you got... Yeah, like the Philosopher's Stone, that magic formula to put this together, then you would have some form of immortality.